Welcome to The Quarantine Tapes, a daily podcast from Onassis, L.A. and Dublin. Hosted by Paul Holdengraber, this series chronicles shifting paradigms in the era of social distancing. Hello. Hello, could I please speak with Morten Subotnik? Yes, this is he. Hello, Morton. This is Paul, Paul Holdengraber, calling you from the quarantine tapes. I'm so very delighted right. that you could take time to speak to us today. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Tell me, uh, where do I find you? And if I may ask, what have you been up to in these now six months of quarantine? Uh, has it been that? I thought it was my whole life. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't it feel like yeah. that? Yeah, no, uh, we're we're up in Westchester near um, near um, Peekskill on the Hudson. And and what has what have these six months been for you? What have you been doing, and maybe what have haven't you been doing that you wish you could have done? Well, I've been doing eighty five percent of the time. I'm doing what I always do. I'm in my studio working. I have lovely view of trees from here, and and uh, so that part has been pretty steady in terms of my in my work but not not being able to go anywhere is another situation but um but i've been doing pretty much i would say 75 percent of my time is doing exactly what i've been doing most of my life sometime morton in the 1950s it dawned on you that you were living through a what you call a pivotal turning point in the history of music what what was the nature if one can say of this epiphany you compare that moment, actually, so interestingly, I found, to the beginning of what it might have been to be at the beginning, at the origin of the printing press. Yes, that was the end of the 50s. And I, I realized that, I mean, at that point in time, we were already a little bit technical, technically savvy. We had radios, of course. and um, But most, most of the history of the human being has been, with music, has been, listening directly to someone playing or playing it yourself. There was no other way to do it. That's where, you know, I, I think uh, as far as I can tell, maybe 45,000 years at least, because that's the first the first flute that we've got. That's a long time. And um, the same, of course, was true of the uh, printing press and I guess the, until writing to start with. But, but um, uh, I guess they had tablets they could send around. But pretty much the printing press made made um, reading um, what someone wrote um, available, you know, worldwide, and it changed a lot. And it seemed to me that that was going to happen. Uh, I didn't know exactly, you know, how it was going to be, probably with recordings with, with vinyl records. Uh, but I really didn't know, you know, what would happen with a computer and so forth. But that seemed to me a, a, a sort of an equivalent that, um, you know, suddenly people in the middle of... Um, um, I don't know where, you know, uh, out in Borneo or wherever is remote, that um, they would be able to hear music. They'd be able to hear the Berlin Philharmonic. Only only people who lived in Berlin could hear the Berlin Philharmonic. Uh, uh, and even if you could afford, but it was cheap, too. You mean records were cheap? Yeah, they were cheap. You know, they were under a dollar, um, and that was 
three or four dollars now, but still, that I mean, the, the equivalent to three or four dollars, but they were cheap. They weren't very good. It was, you could hear it. No, I, when, and, I, when I when I heard when I read about uh, you comparing it to the printing press, it it brought uh, it brought back to mind uh, reading these wonderful books about the origin of the printing press and also um, the oral tradition. Um, you, you might be familiar with Walter Ong, who wrote so so beautifully about about the theme. And I'm I'm wondering if you you can bring us back um, to that moment a little bit later in your life of Mills College in the 1960s, where you then worked on the development of the first analog synthesizer. You said you wanted to create, and I love this, an electronic music easel, an object similar to what they'd be using in a hundred years. Well, I thought the hundred years, because it took that long for the printing press to get, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, real books out, people. That was a hundred years. But um, yeah, I, I still feel that way. It's changed, you know, it's evolved, but I pretty much from that moment um, all the way to the present. But at that moment, it was very exciting to me because I, I realized that, that the music that, I mean, I was playing, I was playing actually part-time with the San Francisco Symphony at the time and yeah. and also um, uh, going on concert tours with a chamber music group and uh, played concertos and things like that with orchestras, but I realized that uh, two things really. One, one, one was that not everybody. Um, y you really get music through. It, it speaks through the ear, and if you're a musician, it speaks in different ways through the body and so forth, body memory and all that. But but most people hear music. I realized that this music that we're hearing because of the oral tradition, and I, and I say that because because it, we, we did write music finally, and but, but that didn't help anyone because they couldn't hear it. That's why I mentioned the ear. Right. Music really enters through the ear, so musicians can play it from written music, and that did something. But it wasn't it wasn't the big turnover that the printing press did. And I realized that that the it was complicated. I mean, I'm pausing because it's a very it was a it's a complicated notion. On the one hand, a person like myself who had started music early, maybe I don't know six seven years old, and pretty much got addicted to it, and was playing music all my life for hours a day, and and learning music and learning about music, and that was it. So by the time I was 17 or 18, and Getting ready to enter the world, I was I was I was playing professionally um, when I was fifteen or sixteen years old. So that was you know that it, it was just part of me. But most people don't. I mean, the majority of people don't come near that kind of experience. So those people were the, the majority of people were sort of stuck at seventeen or eighteen. You can you can't decide actually. I don't think to suddenly be a concert pianist at 18 years old. I mean, you could decide to do it, but yes. it's very remote possibility yeah. it at won't, that point. It, it, won't, it won't materialize simply because it, you've decided. That's right. And, um, I mean, it, 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 it's all this body energy that, you know, memory that you develop over all those years. So, um, it, it occurred to me that the, the two things that occurred to me, it was similar to the printing press, that uh, that the people who were addicted to music in the traditional way, um, you know, from playing an instrument, would probably continue that way. The, the technology was not going to change much. 
the good thing is that you were a good musician. The bad thing is that you can't take on new things. <laughs> like they can't take on the music. You can't easily take on new things at that point. But the majority of people would be getting it, maybe for the first time, they'd be getting interested in, in, in the music. And the, the, the economy to me at that point, and the reason I actually gave up playing the clarinet, one of the reasons I gave up, I left the concert world and devoted myself to this other, is that they would be getting music through what we call popular music because that's why it's popular, because people listen to it. It's not something that requires uh, years and years of experience. It's, it's relatively straightforward and, it, and it's popular. And so they'd be coming to it from there. So we had the same kind of thing in, in, in the, in the, with a book when it came. A lot of people felt this was terrible because people weren't going to be reading the Bible, not in Latin or in Hebrew or whatever language, whatever the book was supposed to be in. And um, and that was going to uh, do some bad things. And it, and it did democratize it, but it certainly did. It caused a lot of problems as well. Yes. You know, it, it's a very difficult situation. And I felt that, that the, the beauty of the, what was going to happen with music was also problematic, that, that people were already illiterate musically, and this would make them literate only through the year. So, I mean, I have a Schwinn bike, and I'm, one of the things I'm doing in this, this uh, quarantine is I'm, I'm going seven miles a day on my Schwinn bike. Uh, and I'm listening to the book, and to a number of things. Right now, uh, I'm probably for another five, six, seven days, it'll be about two weeks, I'm listening to The Art of the Fugue as I go. And it's just, and I'm watching mountains in France <laughs> going through it on my computer as I as I do this. How glorious, I, I, how glorious. Yeah, it, I know. And, and you know, I was thinking about that this morning. I When you get to a double fugue, it's just, it makes my heart race. It's just, my head opens up. And then I was thinking back, you know, from those early days, it's very unlikely that a person who didn't grow up with as much literacy as I did would have, would be able to hear that and know that that's happening. So it was a complicated thing. And so at that point, right now back to the late fifties and the early sixties and uh, when I was working, and actually we started this in the 63 with Don Buchla. I wanted to create something that was not a musical instrument. I, I like to call it now um, an instrument, a traditionally based musical instrument where you can play. The only thing you can do on it is play the music similarly to everything that's been done with that. If you have a black and white keyboard, it's basically a keyboard instrument and you have to tune it. So whatever key you've got it tuned to, whatever tuning you've got a team tuned to is going to give you that kind of music and you have to learn to play it. I mean, it's, it's a crazy notion, but if you, if you give someone a traditional instrument technology that, that connects to something, you still have to learn the thing to play it. So you, so I wanted something I call that making new old music. Yeah. And what I was looking for is somebody at that age level, 17, 18 years old or younger, that wanted to create something musically. You could do that in painting, but you can't easily do that in music. So that, that was the idea. I was going to have to place myself in order to make a new, new music. And perhaps in time, if you had the right equipment that would facilitate this to happen, um, there would be in, um, new new music. 
music that didn't start at five years old but started at 11 years old or 20 years old or 30 years old and but it would be creative and it would have its own its own syntax its own life um so that i i placed tried to place myself i knew i couldn't place myself as a person who didn't so i was i thought of my this is going to sound presumptuous but I thought of myself not as a composer, really, as but as a even though I was writing music then for traditional ones. But I thought of myself as a as a creative musician trying to make a new new music. And I I I was thinking of Berlioz. I was thinking of these grand pieces that you could do. But I didn't know what that. I didn't want to didn't want to sound like Berlioz. I wanted I wanted to, to grow and find some language, but um, I I don't know why. But I I never really paid a lot much attention to his to his background. But I know that he got kicked out of the conservatory yes. in France at one point. And I my guess is that he wasn't quite fooled like some of the other people were. That he was a maverick of some sort that came out of it because he certainly did a different thing than anyone else was doing at that time. And um, and, then, and then odd people like Schumann would love him, but everybody else would think, what is this that he's doing anyway? Um, so that's what I thought. And But I, I wasn't really looking to make, you know, to make waves as a composer, but rather to help create this instrumentation, electronic instrumentation, that would show things you could do because I was positive and to this part I was completely right that what would happen with this new technology is that is that people would want to get involved so that they can make money and they would make what they knew about music which was traditional instruments and they'd make it uh, electronically so we the first thing we'd have is a, is a is a keyboard and you know and eventually we got and only that was only because that was easy if you wanted a trumpet, you, that that did come later, and and saxophones and clarinets and you know other instruments and finally string instruments, but they were difficult to technologically make. So the keyboard would be the first, and that certainly you know we we came the vocal came on I, Silver Apples of the Moon came one year before I switched on Bach, luckily because nobody would listen to right. it. You know it was. Um, and and it is it is a really testament to to how correct I was about what was going on, and that that was really my thought. A new new music has plagued me all my life. I still I still live with it. You know, I listen to the art of the fugue, and I wonder in the new new music what would be the equivalent to the art of the fugue. I'm, I, I, I'm trying. I'm 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 just imagining you, Morton. Um, bicycling those seven miles, uh, listening uh, to the art of the fugue, um, remembering your, 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 your feelings about Berlioz and, and also wondering now, you, you've spoken about the need to see beyond electronic music. And I'm, I, I feel like that might be a life's quest. I, I wonder what you mean by that. And you've said that technology, technology should allow you to move back to your inner self. Yeah, through to that technology, not beyond technology. Through technology, I may have said beyond technology, but it, there, you need technology to do that. Well, I did it actually. I began doing it um, after see, starting with touch, but uh, that was 1969. By 1970, I, I developed 
I, about, about 1969, I called Don Brooklyn on the phone and I said, I've made a, I've made a big mistake because I was thinking so much about painting that I was constantly telling him about using your hands. So we use our fingers and, and different ways of pressing things and pushing things. And I said, I left out the thing that I'm actually best at using not my voice, but my breath. And, uh, and, and I, I would like to use my voice and transfer that into the brush, you know, the, 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 the brush. So he made me an envelope um, uh, detector, which, which translated the amplitude of my voice into, you know, instead of the, in addition to the touch things. And I got really good at that. I, and I still use that um, as, as a model. So I could, and I could take the very envelope of the amplitude and send it back into the electronics and make it go, oh, well, I can't sing the electronics, but into, um, in, into it. And, and I, I really perfected that by, um, oh, by the late 70s. I finally got until spring and then a sky of cloudless sulfur with the last one. I finally, I, that's how I ended with the with the records and uh, moved on to other places and translating. I kept translating that in other other ways. It's still, it's still, um, I, I work that way now. I have a wonderful breath controller that I use um, that allows me to, to play the clarinet practically. In, into it, but but do it, but not not as a performance instrument, but as as an entrance. Like in, instead of the brush, I have my mouth, <laughs> my voice that I can breathroke, you know, sound, <laughs> you know, and then so you and then you translate into electronic sounds that move and move through the room, and, and um, anyway, you, you get the idea. So that's what I meant, and and you actually can do it. I think we'll get better. I think that that will get better, but you don't get better at it unless someone needs it. Someone has to break that that thing, and and I. I'm writing memoir, a memoir, and I'm I'm going to share. I'm trying to share like mad. I still teach lectures twice a week. Um, I'm trying to make this known, and I'm I'm releasing all the technology that I've done. Um, there'll be along with my memoir. There'll be uh, uh, a, a website that you can come in and download for free. That's you know, wonderful. That's wonderful. Things. That's what, so, that is so wonderful to to hear. Uh, Morton, really, how 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 great both the memoir and and what you're going to share with the world in t terms of technology. I want to bring you back again, if you permit me, to being even younger as a as a very young child. You you were transformed by reading a biography of Mozart, as well as several books by Stoic philosophers. <laughs> uh, what 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 was it, Morton, uh, about these books that opened your mind? When I when I read about this, it reminded me of the wonderful line of Frank Zappa, who said, "A mind is like a parachute; it doesn't work if it isn't open." And w what is it that opened you at that moment with Mozart and with the Stoic philosophers? I honestly don't know. I, I, I know exactly. I was about eight, a little under nine years old. Amazing. And, um, and I don't, I don't really know. I, I actually went through several years of psychoanalysis and I never really, I, I couldn't really, I couldn't tell you uh, for this, sure. I don't, this, don't this, really this, know. This is your chance. Yeah. <laughs> But, um, and, and, I, and the pair, of course, 
Well, I loved, um, I played the clarinet. I played, uh, by, by nine years old, I was already playing the Mozart clarinet concerto. So I, I, Mozart and Brahms, for me, were the, the two composers that had music, you know, for the clarinet that I really loved um, um, more than anything. And, and, um, and, and reading the Mozart, I don't even know how I got the, the biography, but in reading the biography of Mozart, I can tell you it, it's kind of it, it's kind of odd. But if my memory tells me what I was really inter- what really opened my mind, what I remember most is that he was poor. He was and and um, only lived to I don't know thirty some odd years. I thought he lived to thirty. I think he lived a little bit longer than 30, that. But, but it, yeah, but I but it's somehow the the thirty rang in my head, and that's what until later in life I thought he had he had died at thirty. Um, and I and that I even thought I was going to die at thirty. Um, but I won't bother with that story. You can get it out of my memoir. But but um, but that. Those are the things that I mean. The, the fact that he was a great musician and um, and the music was so beautiful, I didn't that that didn't open my mind. What opened my mind was was that he was poor and died young, and um, the, the 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 and that triggered the notion a that maybe I could be a composer, and b I better live my life as hard and fast as I can because I may die young. <laughs> And, and I did. <laughs> and the, the the Stoic philosophy for me was um, a kind of existential. I mean, I mean, there was there was no well, there was, but I didn't know about it. It, it, there was a kind of existential quality to it that um, that that meant you live your life. Like what I got from there was I, I don't know exactly where or how I wear Epictetus and Marcus Aurelius, and um, and I don't know where it is that I got it. Whether either it's in the books or it's just part of again, just part of my memory bank that it just transformed. But what I learned was for me at that point the the meaning of life for me, and that it never changed. Which is you find out who you. You are your 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 duty is to find out who you are, what you are, and do the very best you can with that, and share what you do with other people. That that's what I've done my whole life. Not a bad uh, not so, a, not a bad lesson to to learn. Not a bad lesson not, to learn, and not a bad lesson to learn when you find books in your parents' garage and read yes. them and, re- and, and 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 read them for a year when you're nine years old. You met Stan Brackage when you were both quite young to to what, yeah. to what extent do you see parallels between what he did in the realm of film and what you've done in the realm of music and is he still with you um yeah he he uh, we were very close in the early years um in the early 50s um, and we've spent lots of time together, and and um, his his notion was, who knows? Maybe I was influenced by it. I don't know, but there was no technology for music at that time. But um, his notion was to make art. Was he was very well read, um, extremely well read, and um, um, but he chose film because he felt that that was not only a new medium um, for the future, but that it was this, the the film film stock itself won't live it will die and we used to have these talks where we would talk you know maybe we should we, we should just close libraries so people would just live now 
and make things now. <laughs> of course, we spent a lot of time in reference libraries um, in Denver looking up books and things like that. So it was kind of immature. But um, but that, that notion of wanting to do a new, new thing. And, and um, when we were starting the Tape Center in the early 60s in San Francisco, uh, Stan came and lived in San Francisco for, I don't know how long, maybe a year. And um, he actually made a film of us, which we can't find. Nobody can find now. But um, but it was very similar to, to he was he was trying to create a new, new, he, he didn't like, as well, many, many of the experimental people at that time, uh, well, there weren't that many, but the, the, those people that I knew, and certainly Stan, didn't think it was, they were making old, new old things, old, they were making new old art by having people talk on film because you have that already going in, in the theater. It should be an, an art form of its own. That was the real feeling at that point in time. It never really materialized to a large extent, but that's what he was trying to do. And and I think it's, it is very similar because what I've done, what you hear on records is pretty much new and not sometimes <laughs> new old music. And sometimes it's just a little changed old music. Um, and the, the uh, on records and, you know, it, that, that's happening with the technology. I think it's extremely difficult to make a new, new, new thing. And um, I think you can influence people with an abstract painting lasted, but um, for a while it had the same impact. Um, and it stays, but... Um, but still, the majority of people don't do, you know, they don't go in that direction. But it does have an impact. It does make a change. And I think in that respect, um, we were similar in that, in that way. Morton, what a, what a pleasure to talk to you. I mean, it's really wonderful. And, you know, reading about also that moment uh, in 1959 when the credit card first came about and those pivotal moments when things actually changed. And I'm thinking, you know, probably I imagine that Marshall McLuhan uh, would have at some point in your life had an impact on you. And thinking about that, I was thinking, you know, w what better way to end than to, to ask you to comment on this Marshall McLuhan quotation where he says that every society honors its live conformist and its dead troublemakers. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, he, I actually, we actually read, uh, a group of us read some notes from an, uh, the, the lecture he gave that led into uh, understanding media. So we, we actually knew McLuhan's writing um, almost two years before the book came out, three years maybe even. And it was a big influence on me. I, the quote I like is, we walk into the future backwards looking through a rearview mirror. Yeah, it's fantastic. No, it's really... How do you, under <laughs> how do you understand that, Morton? Well, it, 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 I, understand, I understand it differently. I've understood it differently throughout my life. But now I understand it because I've been listening, listening to audiobooks on, on how the brain um, works with memory. And um, I think I think that it's a. It, I see it now. I don't know exactly what he. I don't, I don't know exactly how he intended it, but I see it now as a real truism. Um, we have no choice. I, I used to think we had a choice, but I don't think we have a choice. We we have to reconstruct the past. We have no future. The future is always now, and we only have the past and the present. We don't have the future. We, we're constantly moving into it. 
And so the, the secret for me, and I think that's what it's come, come to mean, is that you have to reorganize the past and allow it to break through in new ways to make a little crack ahead. So you can just see a, a footprint <laughs> to go forward. So to try to look forward, you know, I can tell you that if I drop something, I can, I can, add, I know it's going to hit the ground. <laughs> That's about it. Other than that, you, you're just guessing. So the idea of constantly opening this up and pushing that road ahead and gradually being able to turn your head from the rearview mirror and walk into that dark future and make little tiny steps at a time. Um, that's been my life. So um, uh, it, that's it. Morton, thank you so much. Thank you so much for taking my call. It's really been a, a great pleasure to speak with you. I hope that someday when travel again, it's possible we meet in person. But until then... Well, that, would be, that would be very nice. Can I give you one little, because this was the, this was the whatever you call these programs, um, uh, the, the being locked up, the quarantine. I, I always, only, always wanted to go and be of the first colonists or among the first colonists of the moon or Mars. And in either case, I have a little picture of, of people with little things on my wall that has people with a, they're out in the field, but they have these things around their head, um, you know, because there's no oxygen in the air. And, um, when this first happened, I thought, well, I can't go to Mars and I can't go to the moon, but this is the way I'd have to live in my house with the oxygen in it. And I have to talk to people through technology. And so, I mean, it's not that I like doing that, but it gave me a sense that if we did actually colonize, this is the way we'd have to live in quarantine, at least for many generations. So for me, it's sort of, for me personally, I'm not talking about, you know, what a wonderful thing it happened, but, but, but uh, for me personally, it's sort of a, it's sort of a, I never got to go to the moon, of course, or to Mars, but it gives me a sense of what it must have felt like, but what it would have felt, what it will feel like at some point. Down when we down go. Yeah, when we go. Okay. Morton, thank you so much and um, all the very best. Stay safe and let us hope we, we meet here or on the moon. <laughs> I would prefer Mars, actually. Okay. okay. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's a date and it's a deal. Okay. All the best. Okay. All the best to you, too. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. To support this show and DubLab's progressive programming, go to dublab.com slash support. 